please turn to the book of 1 Peter. Book of 1 Peter, chapter 1. After 19 sermons in 1 Peter, this is the morning, Easter, to concentrate on the foundation of the hope that Peter is talking about. So remember, Peter sits down now as an old man 30 years after that horrendous night where he denied knowing Jesus for fear. 30 years after the brutal Roman execution of his Master. And remember, the thrust of this letter now to his readers is a living, deep, profound hope for those who are suffering especially. The question for these Christians in the first century is the same question for us in this book. How do we get through life? How do you get through differing degrees of trials, grief, pain, suffering? Over the last few weeks we've seen He's told them, bear up under even abusive authority over you and be submissive. (laughs) Not just a state, but if you're a slave, you have a slave master who is unjust, be submissive. Wives, you have a role, we're going to see, even with unbelieving husbands who are messed up. Be submissive. They're suffering persecution and ridicule from neighbors because of their faith. And the thrust of this letter is to say there's hope. Let's read in a nutshell how he puts this again. Chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. This is how he opens up the body of this letter. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us who are Christians to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Unto an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. That is, you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Now in this reality and hope, you rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials in order that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, but that your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though, Christian, you don't see Jesus right now, 
you love Him. Though you do not yet see Him, you rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible. And it's filled with glory. And you are obtaining the outcome of that faith. The salvation of your souls. Let's pray. Father, let that otherworldly, real, and miraculous living hope grow because we're here this morning. Grow all the more in your people and or bring people into it to the glory of Jesus' cross and His resurrection. Amen. Now, what we just read, Peter, he just told us crystal clear what is the power where where's the source to obey these commands that we're seeing in this letter as we're working through it where's the source to endure grief and it's right there in verse 3 according to his great mercy he the Father has caused us to be born again unto a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The power is this otherworldly living hope that He births in those who are being saved. And thus they endure through the trials of life and obtain the salvation of their souls. Now, weeks back, we saw with Peter, don't throw your own meaning onto his word hope. We saw that Peter does not mean hope like the way it's thrown around a lot. Like, I hope my team, who's a 45-point underdog, wins. I mean, you know. Most likely they're not. I doubt if they will, but I hope so. That is not what he means by hope. When Peter of chapter 1, go to verse 13, when he says, quote, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When he says that, he does not mean that we should desire it, but be uncertain about that. Now, the coming back of Jesus in that same body that was brutally tortured and killed, but now resurrected and changed. The coming back in that resurrected physical body, he says, is the hope. And for the writers of the New Testament, it is not a hope that is uncertain. It is a hope that, yes, it wants it. Yes, it desires it. That is essential to hope. But it is a hope that not only desires it, but it has an assurance that it is going to happen. He'll come back and He will consummate the grace that He began in the believer on this side called the veil of tears. It's called for Peter a living hope. 
It is a hope that is birthed by an eternal God. The Holy Spirit who is alive in you. It is otherworldly. He he describes what it produced. This is not a command for Christians. Oh, by the way, since you now believe in Jesus, you should go on feeling this way. This is true about you. It may lie dormant at times. And it should be, but that seed better be in you or you're not yet a Christian. And that's verse 8. Though you don't see him. <laughs> How does this happen? I know. You love him. Though you don't see him now, you rejoice. Remember, in the midst of grief, in the midst of pain. You rejoice with a joy that is it's inexpressible. It's filled with glory. That's the hope Peter's talking about. That's the source of living day by day before you die in this world. Now, let's not miss it. Nineteen weeks. Do you remember how this hope comes about? That's a huge question. How do I get that Well, the answer is right there in chapter 1, verse 3. And in chapter 1, verses 23 to 25. What I mean is this. As we look at this this morning, thousands upon thousands of people are in churches on this Easter morning throughout this world. And thousands upon thousands of them are coming into that church without 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 this living hope. Some of them will leave with it. And many of them will come in without it and they will leave that church service on Easter morning without this living hope. Peter says this is how it comes about. Verse 3. God has caused us to be born again. Producing the living hope. And He did it through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This living, life-changing hope, He says, is that which was birthed by another, not you. God caused it and thus produced saving faith or that living hope. But now don't miss it. In some sense, God doing that in a sinner like me, in some sense He does it, it says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Okay, now what does that mean? Here's Peter. He's writing this. Three decades after what happened geographically over there in Jerusalem and right outside Jerusalem. And he's writing this 30 years after and to people who are living 400, 500, up to 1,000 miles away in those five provinces 30 years later. And he says to them, you were born again through the resurrection. Or or, or to us, we got a much larger gap. I was born again in 1981, almost 2,000 years after what happened in Jerusalem on that Good Friday and that first Easter morning. 
What's the connection? How was I born again through that resurrection? And that's why there's verses 23 to 25 in chapter 1. Because now he says there, you, same people, have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. In verse 25, And this Word is the good news that was preached to you. So, so Peter just clearly has made the connection between the historical resurrection of Jesus Christ in around A.D. 33 with our new birth 2,000 years later. He said the connection is the carrying of that message or that news called the Gospel. That's what good news means. That's how we're born again through the resurrection. Now, listen to how Paul states this in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. He says to the church there, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. For I delivered to you as a first importance, what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. And that He was buried. That He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That's His message and God does something, he says, causes people to be born again when they hear. Just so, let's just hear the progression of this. The new birth is an act of God. It is miraculous. You cannot bring it about. Amen. It precedes faith and causes saving faith according to our text and numbers of other. That's why Jesus says, unless you're born again, you never see the kingdom of God. But I've got to see it. I've got I to see Him for who He is to be saved, right? Yes, you do. And you'll never do it unless you're born again. Okay. So, verse 3 says we're born again through, now, the resurrection. But verse 23 says we're born again through the living and abiding Word of God. That is, the announcement of His death and the announcement of His bodily resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus does not produce hope if people do not hear about it. And when you turn that around a little bit, there's another truth there too. Because it's not merely words that He was risen that should produce hope. Those words must be true. You've got to have some reason to believe those words. Or it's not going to produce hope. Here's Peter. He shows up a little bit over five weeks later with the rest of the apostles and a whole bunch of others who 
proclaimed. They witnessed something. And he's preaching in Jerusalem. And the bottom line of the power of that preaching, of who that Jesus itinerant preacher from Galilee was, was that God raised him from the dead. All his enemies, the Pharisees had to do, was drag his dead, hard, stinking body right up there in the midst of that sermon. And no one would have had living hope produced in them that morning. Both of these are true. There is the desperate need for the mercy of God to change your hearts to embrace the truth of an objective historical reality. Now I say it that way. Why? We, we live in a culture right now called postmodern culture. Relativism is everywhere. Oh, that's good. You believe that truth? Then it's true for you. Greg Kokel, uh, I like the way he says it. He says it so well in his book called Relativism, Feet Firmly Planted in Midair, when he writes, Since the 1960s, we have been in the throes of this quiet but desperate revolution of thought called the death of truth. We don't mean truth in the sense of something being... Excuse me. We don't mean truth in the sense of something being my personal opinion when we talk about death of truth. Rather, we refer to the death of what the great Dr. Francis Schaeffer called true truth. The extinction of the idea that any particular thing can be known for sure. Today, we've lost the confidence that statements of fact can ever be anything more than just opinion. We no longer know that anything is certain beyond our subjective preferences. The word truth in our culture now means true for me and nothing more. End quote. So, if you turn on PBS and Bill Moyers has a special, or the way Peter Jennings used to love to do these specials on ABC when he was alive, you know, on the Jesus question, especially during this time of the year, and they usually grab some of the most radical anti-resurrection scholars they can. But then it'll finally come down, okay, after all that, and all these different reasons why, you know, Christianity believes in a resurrection. But did Jesus rise from the dead? And these guys will say something like this. Yes. For Christians. That is not the gospel. That is not what it means to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Just because someone believes something does not make it true. Conservative estimate. 8% of Americans believe, and I believe this, that Elvis Presley is alive. I mean, I believe that 8% believe this. <laughs> that does not mean he's alive. Just because people believe that our government planted uh, explosive devices in the Twin Towers and the other buildings around, 
doesn't mean that that's necessarily, objectively, the reality. That type of thinking that's in the air of our culture, well, that's good for you, it's true for you, then that is true, it's your truth, and maybe not be my truth. That kind of speaking, those kind of words, and the thought behind that is not now, nor ever will be consistent with biblical Christianity. So what we're seeing here in the first chapter of Peter, Saving faith in the person of Christ and in what the Gospel teaches about Him, culminating in His resurrection, is, it is subjective. That is a subjective, internal, real, personal experience in those who are being saved or they're not being saved. But... Having said that, that personal Holy Spirit wrought work in the soul is grounded upon truth that is outside of you, whether you believe it or not. And specifically about an historical, in time, in space, proclamation, news, this dead body of the Nazarene preacher, not only after at least, I don't know how many hours, but he's hardened, the brain is now gone, impossible, comes back to a life, and not resuscitation, a new form of resurrected life. It's based on knowing, trusting, hearing, and somehow makes sense to me. Something was born in you when you heard that proclamation. See, if that man, Jesus, who was crucified by the Romans in around A.D. 33, if He did not come back to life in new resurrected form, then Christianity is a farce. Period. Look or listen how clear the Scripture is on that statement. The Apostle Paul writes, 1 Corinthians 15, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Why, Paul? Because we are even found to be misrepresenting God. Because we testified that God has raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. And indeed, if the dead are not raised, then not even Jesus has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised then your faith is futile. And you are still in your sins. So I just want to spend 10, 12 minutes here. And then we'll come back to her and end this sermon. But first, oh yeah, 
Thank God for new birth. If you have clung to Him, you have seen and you believe He is risen and you say He's risen indeed. Okay, we're talking about an objective, historical reality that either happened or didn't happen. And biblical faith clings to, with good reason, that it did happen. And so just let me lay out a few strong reasons. First, because without doubt, there was this guy named Jesus, Galilean, itinerant preacher, going up and down the coast of the Mediterranean there in the first century. And he was crucified under Pontius Pilate on a Roman cross. Okay, that guy... The testimony in history is really strong with the eye and the ear witnesses who hung out with him. He kept saying he was going to be killed and that he would rise from the dead. He said it publicly and this way, destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up, to which they twisted and used it against him in his trial. Or, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And to His disciples, He was utterly clear when He got alone. I'm going to Jerusalem and they're going to kill me and I'm going to rise the third day. And He said it over and over. But that's no argument that it happened. I know. But as we put these arguments together, they're really strong. And so to, to live in our day, whether it's, whether it's Gandhi or a lot of New Age people or even some believing Jews, it's, it's, it's great. Christians, I love Christians. It's awesome. It's founded on this resurrection of Christ. Good. They believe that. But see, everyone wants to embrace Jesus. You don't, don't want to be anti-Jesus. You can't sell your product if you do that. So whether, whatever religion you are, you want to, he's a great, good, moral teacher and a lot of influence for good in the world. And you think... What are you talking about? Do you have any idea who this historical person was and what he said? If you don't believe that he actually came back to new, immortal, resurrecting life in that body, how could you say he's a good moral teacher? At best, he was a nutcase. Because he said he's going to rise from the dead. And at worst, he's a vicious liar and deceiver. If we take history seriously. Okay, now, secondly, you put that together, here's a reality. That carved out in a big old rock cave where he was laid, huge stone put over it, it was empty. And his enemies could not produce a body. Doesn't prove it. That's a huge fact. With Roman guards. How did that happen? They could not produce the body. Thirdly, we must account for the radical change in His disciples. At His crucifixion and after His crucifixion, And for those days following, they were utterly dejected, depressed, scared out of their minds, and in hiding. And then weeks later, 
they have this unbelievable boldness and joy overflowing where they're ready to risk their life on behalf of their rabbi, their master, because foundationally they're proclaiming he's been resurrected from the dead. And so that's how, how just as a good historian, try to be objective, how do you, what reasons can we give for this radical change? Well, they give a reason. They give an explanation. And their explanation is, not only the tomb's empty, we hung out with Him and ate food with Him and were continually taught by Him for the next five and a half weeks. You gotta do, that's their testimony. So I want you to turn with me to one of these guys who's given his testimony, standing before court, saying, this is, this is what I saw happen. John, book of John, chapter 20. Now, before we read, start with verse 5 to 9, just, just get the picture. Jesus is killed on the cross. Joseph of Arimathea gets permission from Pilate to go ahead and take the body. They take the body... And they got tons of spices. And what they are doing with the body is that they put spices on this dead corpse and they're wrapping it with cloth. And more spices and wrapping the body with more cloth. And more spices and more cloth and wrapping him and wrapping him and essentially mummifying the body. And then they lay him, a slab inside that little cave, face up. His face, his neck, his shoulders are bare. The rest is just wrapped around. Wrapped, 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 wrapped. Mummified. And on the top of his head, there's cloth wrapped around above his eyes, almost like a turban. And there he lay. Now, here's a question first. For we read this. I... I, I what would we have seen if you could be a fly on the wall on that first Easter morning? What would we have seen? Would, would we see that dead body wrapped like that starting to move a little bit? <laughs> Try, trying to get loose? Finally loosen enough to unwrap himself? I don't think that's what we would have seen. We would have seen him there. You would have been able to see his face. You see him wrapped up. And then he's gone. Or he just stands up right and goes right through the cloth. I don't know how. It's something like that. And the cloth kind of falls a little bit. You would see something like that. And he wanted to, for effect, take that wrap off. Let me fold it up nice and put it here. So, let's read. Starting with verse 5, John 20. John and Peter run. John, like most guys always do, claims he was much faster than Peter. And he got there. But Peter went in. He says, now verse 5, And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there. That's Peter. Get it? He saw those linen cloths lying there. But he did not go in. Excuse me, that's John. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and he went into the tomb. 
He saw the linen cloths lying there. And the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, that's John referring to himself, who had reached the tomb first, also went in. And, let me just put it in his first person. And he says, I saw and believed. For as yet, they did not understand the Scripture that He must rise from the dead. John just said, what I saw didn't tell me the body was stolen. And I wasn't convinced of Scripture yet. But I saw something there that said, He rose! There's no other explanation. He saw the grave close there, lying undisturbed. And He says, And I believed. He knew no one moved the body. He knew no one messed around with the grave clothes. But that body was inside there, and now it's not inside those wrappings. And he just concludes, he is risen. And you add to that now, because it goes on. It ain't merely because of what, how did that happen? How did the body leave those mummified wrappings? But it is These guys are testifying not only that, but for the next five weeks, we actually talked with him, saw his hand, touched him, saw his feet, saw the wound, touched the wound in his side, conversed with him. This is the same guy we've been hanging out with whom we saw die. For instance, Luke 24, verses 38 to 43. And Jesus said to them, Why? Are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of boiled fish and he took it and he ate the fish. Or in Acts 1-3, Luke records, He, Jesus, presented Himself alive to them after His suffering by many proofs appearing to them during forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now, that's crazy stuff. Just can't. And one thing about Easter, and it's like any other um, traditions which are awesome, you've got to watch it. Just, it sounds like poetry. sounds like words, you know. The tomb was rolled. No, no, you've got to almost reword it to say, are these guys nuts? Because th- this is what they are testifying to and to the world about. They're saying we hung out with him. We hung out with him a little bit in Jerusalem. We went up about 95 miles to the Sea of Galilee. We hung out with him. He would show up unannounced constantly and continue to teach us. And then he would be disappeared. It was a different form of life, a different form, a changed, resurrected, immortal body that he was in. 
And then finally, the Apostle Paul testifies in 1 Corinthians 15, 4-8. That Jesus Christ was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Peter and to the twelve. And then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep or died. Go ask them. Then He appeared to James. Now that's strange. You know, James is his brother. Can you picture yourself really going for some type of lie? Going to start. And James became the head honcho in Jerusalem for years over the church. You're going to start worshiping your brother? <laughs> he did. He appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, Paul testifies, He appeared to me. And you add to that that most all of these eyewitnesses to the physical bodily resurrection sacrificed their life in death, were killed for refusing to recant the testimony of what they are testifying about. That's strong evidence. At least, don't you think that that would be worth your or anybody's reading to say, well, okay, these guys, this is what's going on? I want to, do these guys leave any documents? Did, yeah, they did. They wrote some stuff. Don't, don't you think it would be at least worth seeing, let, let me read and see if they, what, what do they sound like? Do they sound like kooks? Because you go on the internet, there's a lot of kooks that have blogs, okay? And I mean, I can only read three sentences just see this person can't even think straight by writing a good sentence. They're almost kooky. Okay. Are these guys kooky? In witnessing, besides answering of friends or our family members or someone you don't know, you witness to questions, good thing. Ultimately, if you can persuade them, pick up the Gospel of John or, or Matthew or just, just try. Just, just sit down and, and read through slowly that historical document. There's something about it, I think. At least it's won me over. They don't seem kooky. A matter of fact, the profundity that I find in the apostles about human nature, about the greatest questions of life, like the problem of, of evil. How is evil here? What do we do with it? Sin the, and the problem of right, wrong. There is such a thing. Injustice and redemption. It is profound. Let's get back to where we started. Here's the big question then. How do these credible evidences of the historical, objective resurrection of Jesus, all those arguments taken together, how do they produce what Peter says, a living hope? Saving faith that causes a believer to endure through life. It's twofold answer and then we end. I say twofold, you can't separate these. But here's the first fold of it. The historical 
physical, bodily reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When you hear the testimony and you know, I believe that now, it produces living hope this way. It means everything He said about who He is is true. has to be. He rose from the dead like He promised. Therefore, who He said He was, who the Hebrew prophets centuries before testified about this Jesus, that's true. That when Jesus said, I give my life as a ransom price for many, He rose. That's true. That, that in His ransom price, He was the substitutionary sacrifice upon which God's wrath for sin was poured out as a substitute. That good news is true. The Bible telling me that as a believer in Jesus, Joe, you who is still Sinful. Stand before God is absolutely sinless in His eyes. You stand before Him not only with sin wiped away, but you stand before Him as if you lived absolutely sinlessly because Jesus lived your life for you. That testimony in the Scripture is true. That as Jesus, this true, human being rose from the dead when they knew resurrected immortal body and thus promised I am the first fruits and I'm coming back to do the same for you. That's true. In other words, the resurrection of Jesus Christ certifies all those glorious truths summarized as the gospel, the good news. Now, if that's true, that produces living hope. Secondfold, the objective historical reality of Jesus of Nazareth's resurrection, it produces the living hope in us by the miracle of God softening, changing our hearts to embrace it. And see the reality that's right in front of us. That's chapter 1, verse 3. He, God, has caused, if you're a believer, this is true, you to be born again unto this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. God produces this living hope by shining the light of His Spirit upon our dark, shriveled up, dead hearts. You may have, like me, heard Easter truth all your life until you're 19 and assented to it. Okay. But we're still under condemnation. And then the wind blew. And you see it savingly and embrace it. 
because he shined the light. Sinner, whether you're a saved sinner or still remain under just condemnation, this is who we are. Who are you? Who am I at the core? Really, we're not, you don't start with, well, we are what we do. I think it's deeper than that. You do what you do because of what you desire. That's how humans work. We at the very core are what we yearn for, what we hope for, what we desire. That's what produces actions. And the problem with every one of us human beings, including my little children, is that we're born into sin. And that means at the very core, we do not, cannot, desire God as the object of true and eternal satisfaction. That's where the gospel then comes. I wasn't Peter. Peter knows that when he's writing to these guys three decades later. Though you haven't seen him. Well, Peter did. He walked with him in his earthly life and he walked with him in his resurrected life. Right, and Peter knows most people won't. But that's why you're born again through the proclamation of that. And the proclamation of the gospel comes. It's an announcement of unbelievable good news that God has sent His eternal, uncreated Son to become truly human in order to live before Him and under His law perfectly where our forefather Adam fell. And He did it as our substitute. And He came so that God's justice, which is perfect, beautifully holy in anger and wrath, would be poured out upon Jesus on the cross. And He did that, not because Jesus sinned, because He did it, but as a substitute towards the sins of others. And God then, on the third day, raised Him from the dead as absolute certification that He is that Messiah, that He is that one and only sinless man. And thus, He certified all of what He said about what is being accomplished for the sins of others is absolutely true and affirmed. And then it says, whosoever will, believe this message and you will be saved. There is no other name there is no other religion. There is no other philosophy that will save any of us in this room from that day which is coming after we die and stand before our Creator. He will be perfectly just. Either through the justice meted out on Christ on your behalf or He will be absolutely fair and just towards your soul, meted out apart 
from Christ. What have you done with that message, that news? If you have not seen Him as that glorious centerpiece, that's what it's got to be all about. I embrace that. The command goes out lovingly from the Gospel. Repent. Turn away from your idols and trust in Christ alone. And if you have embraced Him, then thank your Father in heaven because of your Savior, Jesus Christ. Not only that He removed your just condemnation forever and clothed you with Christ's righteousness, but that Jesus Himself on the cross purchased your new birth, purchased your change of yearnings, desires. But you can look back and say, I have embraced Him. Oh, I'm yet sinful. I still deny Him. But yet I'm real. Because though I don't see Him, I do love Him. Because He's caused you to be born again. And He did it. Because Jesus purchased that for you. The reason Peter says we have been born again unto a living hope is because God did that miracle in our desires by opening the eyes of our heart to see the historical, objective reality that He is risen indeed. Do you believe that? Answer. He is risen. He is risen. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. Come, search. As we are passing out the body and the blood of Christ in the form of bread and grape juice, if you have embraced Jesus as your Savior, if you have embraced the truth of His sacrificial death and His resurrection, if you hold that Christ and Christ alone and nothing you can do is the only way to eternal salvation and the resurrection of your body to enjoy Him forever, then feel free to partake. If not and you have doubt, let the cup, let the bread pass.